You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. So where have you been looking for Jesus? What does it mean that we find him in the temple? How do we respond to him when we do find him there? What you just heard read for you is the only passage in scripture that tells us anything about Jesus' childhood. Now there are several passages in in Matthew and Luke's gospel where we learn about the the infancy and the birth narratives. And of course the the bulk of the gospel narratives, they're, they're they're made up of Jesus' adult ministry. But only here in these 12 verses do we learn anything about Jesus' boyhood. See, we're jumping into the Gospel of Luke for just a day. This isn't a series, and so let me do a little bit of background for us. Luke wrote both this Gospel as well as the book of Acts, and so they could be treated kind of as a first and second books of Luke. But like any good author, in chapter 1, Luke, he makes the purpose of his writing for us very, very clear. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. But what Luke compiles for Theophilus, and we don't really know much about him, but what he compiles for Theophilus, it's investigative journalism. He's relaying facts. This is corroborated eyewitness testimony. And hear this, the whole point of his writing is that Theophilus would know so that we can know that what we had heard about Jesus is actually true. And because, as I mentioned, this is the only text about Jesus' childhood, we need to pay close attention today. Luke has written it down for us for a reason. And one commentator notes that virtually every unit of Luke's gospel challenges us to respond to Jesus. And so even a story about Jesus sticking around his father's house, it actually requires us to respond to him. We can't just read it and say, well, that's a sweet story. 
Now we're being challenged to respond to God come in the flesh, his, his words and his works, even as a boy. And so there's actually a lot to respond to here, but the, the questions that Jesus asks himself in the middle of our text, in the heart of our text, they're actually going to drive us this afternoon. And in verse 49, he says this, he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's basically saying, why do you spend time looking for me anywhere else when it's so obvious that this is where I must be? See, my main point today is really, really simple. Jesus is found in the temple. Even though we spend a lot of time looking for him in other places and probably even hoping that we'll find him other places, we'll find him in the temple. And when we find him, when we encounter the true Jesus, we'll see that he requires a response from us. So let's pick it up in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. All right, so I'm convinced that this is actually where the creators of Home Alone came up with their idea for their movie. Right, because Jesus, it plays out just like the beginning of the movie. He's, he's Macaulay Culkin. He, he's, he's Kevin McAllister. He's just forgotten. His parents are so busy back packing up and leaving that they don't even realize that they left him behind, that he's not in the group. But why were they there? Okay, so verse 41 tells us that they had been in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And from the story, we see that the whole family traveled together as they do every year. But this means that they were actually a pretty, pretty uh, pious family because Jewish tradition, it actually expressly exempts women from having to travel to this festival. But even though they didn't all have to go, we see that this was their family tradition. They all went together. And then after their time there, they pick up and hit the road, but 12-year-old Jesus, he stays behind. And verse 44 tells us that they go a day's journey before they realize that he's not with them. Parents, can you imagine traveling for an entire day and not realizing that you didn't have one of your kids? See, they traveled in really big groups, and so maybe one parent assumes, like, mom says, like, oh, he's over with dad. Or dad says, like, oh, he must be, he's not with me or with mom, but maybe he's, he's, he's traveling with Uncle Jimmy. Or maybe Uncle Jimmy says, like, no, 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 but he probably hitched a ride with the Johnsons who live down the street. Until they finally realize he's not here at all. And so now, as you can imagine, panic is setting in. They've already traveled for a whole day, and now they have to take the day's journey back, and then they spend an entire day searching for him in Jerusalem. But see, while Mary and Joseph, they're actually looking for their lost son, we don't want to miss that. We can also place ourselves in this story as well. This is often us. See, all of people, all of us, we're all on a journey of life, and at some point we all realize that Jesus isn't with us. And so we begin to panic, and we, we start looking for him frantically. Or maybe you wouldn't put it that way, though, maybe, especially if you're not a Christian and, you, and you've joined us today. Maybe you'd say, I'm not really looking for Jesus, but, you know, I would love it if I had meaning in my life. Or I would love to find fulfillment, or if I had a purpose. 
But I'd argue that you only say those words and you don't say you're looking for Jesus because you don't actually know who he is. See, in chapter 1 of John's gospel, we read that Jesus is the word or he's the logos. And this means that he's the conclusion. The word means that he's the divine utterance. He's God's speech to us. He's the very meaning of life. And that's what John says about him. But in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the things that Jesus himself declares about his own self. In the Gospel of John, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door to the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. See, Jesus' testimony about himself is this. He says, I am the true meaning of life. I am purpose. I am fulfillment. I am the conclusion that you're looking for. I am life itself. And so I'll say it again. We are all looking for Jesus. The question is, where are you looking? See, part of our problem is that we have a tendency to look for him in all of the wrong places. Like Mary and Joseph, we thought he was with those around us, maybe. And so maybe you say, yeah, my life isn't really together, but I follow this chick on Instagram and her life is perfect. If I could just make my life like hers, then I'd be all right. Or maybe you, say, maybe, maybe you say, if I could just fine-tune the settings of my life, then I'll be okay. This is why the self-help industry is projected to hit an estimated $13.2 billion this year. Because we believe if we can just fine-tune the settings of our life, then we'll be okay. And this isn't just a point for non-Christians. This is for us. It's for Christians as well. See, we began this Christian life in faith, and maybe we've gotten to a point where we say, yeah, well, yeah, Jesus is great, but if, if only I had the right relationship, or, or if only I had the right job, or if maybe they compensated me better, or if maybe if my kids just behaved, or if my spouse helped more, if my children were always so sick, whatever it is, fill in the blank. We say, if I only had this, then things would be okay. What are you putting in that blank? See, and as we, as we cycle things through that empty space in our life, anxiety and distress begin to set in because we realize this elusive contentment that we've been looking for, it's not here. We can't find it anywhere. And it's because we're looking all over for something where it won't be found. Or more rightly, we should say we're looking all over for someone where he won't be found. See, in all these ventures, all of these endeavors, maybe even in your own New Year's resolutions, what we're really doing is we're looking for Jesus. But for whatever reason, we're looking for him everywhere but where he actually is. See, my garage is typically only clean and organized right before I start a project. And so that means that most of the time, my garage is a complete mess. And if I'm looking for a tool, it means I'm sifting through the junk on my workbench. It means I'm looking all throughout the house. It means I'm racking my brain. Did I leave it somewhere? Did I loan it to somebody? And if I can't find it, what I'll eventually do is I'll go look in my tool chest. Right where it's supposed to be. Look at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. Jesus was found in the temple, right where we would expect to find the Son of God. Friends, where have you been looking for Jesus? Everywhere but the obvious place? 
Jesus is found right where you would expect to find him, in the temple. But before we move on, let me give you just a quick and insufficient overview of the temple. See, in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, we see that King David, he's living in a palace in, in, in Jerusalem. And he says, like, hey, God, like, I'm living in this great place. I'd love to build you one. And God says, like, no, that's not for you to do. He says, instead, when you die, one of your offspring after you, they're going to build me the temple. And that's what we see. We see that Solomon builds the temple. David's son Solomon, he builds the temple. And this was going to be the house of God. This is where God's presence dwelt upon the earth. But check this out. Jesus comes on the scene, and in John 2, he says that I am the temple. He says, if you tear this temple down of my body, I'll just build it back up in three days. And so Jesus is saying, I am where the very presence of God dwells. But listen to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, um, he, he says that we are the temple of the living God, the church. And so that means by his Holy Spirit, God's presence now dwells in us, in the midst of his people. So that means he's here. He's exalted upon our praises. He's with us when we gather together. He's with us when we study the Bible together. He's with us when we pray together. These are the places that you'll find him. Are these the places that you've been looking? See, I want to exhort us, church, if you want to deepen your relationship with Christ this year, then prioritize being where he is. One of the reasons long-distance relationships tend not to work is because it's actually really difficult to develop true and deep intimacy with someone when you're not actually with them. And so prioritize the Sunday service in your life. Find ways to serve with your brothers and sisters. Look for opportunities to gather with folks from the church throughout the week. And listen to this. I am willing to guarantee you that you'll grow closer to him because this is where he says that he is. He's not hidden, but often we are just preoccupied looking for him in all of the wrong places. And so he's in the temple, but now let's see what he's up to. Look again in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, as we noted earlier, it was... Uh, the tradition of their family to all go to the Passover feast together, even though not everyone had to. But we can add to that, okay? So Jesus' age of 12 is actually really important for us here. Because it was at the age of 13 that he, a Jewish boy would be able to be a full participant in the life of the synagogue. They would be expected to assume all of the responsibilities required in, and implied in their circumcision. And so we find out that, that Mary didn't need to come at all. And Jesus didn't need to be in the temple paying attention. But not only do we find Jesus in the temple listening, but we find him asking questions and giving answers. And so this, this is like a classic youth serve day text, right? Because, yeah, because basically this is youth group Jesus meaningfully participating in church life. And so youth, most of you are here. Be encouraged. You are vital parts of our community here. We need you. And we are blessed when you participate in this church with us. 
Because listen, 12-year-old Jesus, he's not just sitting under their teaching, right? He's not just absorbing it and taking it in as if he was trying to pass some sort of a midterm. No, he's participating. The phrase asking them questions in verse 46, it seems innocent enough, but it actually means interrogating or demanding of. And so it's not exactly like when my four-year-old asks me, Dad, how would we escape a dinosaur if it was chasing us? Or if, he, or if he was saying like, hey, Dad, how many years away is the end of the universe? These are questions where it's like, all right, that's cute and adorable, but it's also ridiculous and I'm not going to answer it. No, Jesus, he's asking questions that demand answers. He's interrogating them. He's trying to learn, but also trying to see what they know. And in the end uh, of verse 47, we see that he's actually giving answers as well. He's flexing his understanding a bit. He's growing in knowledge as all children must because he's, he's fully human after all. But he's also uh, showing off that he has a unique ability to understand and articulate both important questions and answers because he is also fully divine. See, and commentators are going to note here that more than likely, what we are getting is a glimpse of Jesus' future ministry. And like any good preview to any movie, it's given you a taste of what you can expect without giving the whole thing away. See, his ministry was going to be a display of his unique understanding and authority over all spheres of life, but particularly through this interrogation style, through his words, through his teaching. And probably the most famous example that we have of this is the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 5 through 7. See, there we read that he begins to unpack the law and he works his way through the Ten Commandments and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And he says, you've heard it interpreted this way, but he says, I'm here to say to you that there's a deeper interpretation. You've been only scratching the surface. And then he goes on to teach about prayer and he teaches about fasting and contentment and possessions and the golden rule and the narrow path. But at the end, once we, we read that once he had finished, the crowd says, quote, was astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, and that's just one example. The list literally could go on and on and on because all throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus flexing this unique authority and understanding through his teaching. And it's this distinct teaching paired with the way that he acts that requires a response from us. It's both his words and his works. And in our text today, there are basically two ways that people respond to Jesus. I'm not saying that these are the only two ways that we can respond to him, but these are the two that show up in the text. And they're amazement and treasuring. So let's look at both. Um, Amazement. Look again in verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. All right, so amazed here literally means removed from a standing position. These people were floored, right? Who is this kid? Do you hear how he talks? Do you hear the things that he says? These folks had to sit down and catch their breath because this 12-year-old was keeping up with the PhDs in the temple. But listen, Just because they were amazed, it doesn't necessarily mean that this was a godly response. In Matthew 27, we read that Pilate was amazed by Jesus. Same word. 
but he still sent him to go and be crucified. And see, it's been said before that there's never been found a word that Jesus ought to have said. And it's because Jesus is amazing. His answers are too good. Read the things he says. Read the way that he responds. Read the circumstances that he's put in. We can't make improvements upon these things. But what that means is that we can read the gospel accounts. We can encounter the true Jesus. We can be amazed at his life and his teaching and simply look to him as just another example among many. Just another good life lived. Maybe even a great life lived, but an example nonetheless. You can be amazed by him and miss him. And it's because you were only amazed by him and not actually changed by him. See, to be changed by him, you have to determine who you actually believe him to be. C.S. Lewis famously noted that in Jesus we have what's known as a trilemma. That he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of all. Those are the only three options that Lewis said that we can have. But as we stare into the face of Jesus Christ here, Luke forces us to respond to him, and we find that we're actually only left with two options. He's either the Son of God, or he is not. And so we have to respond to him. You can't simply look at his teaching. You cannot look at his work. You can't look at the miracles. You can't look at him raising people from the dead. You can't look at him dying for his enemies and raising on the third day and simply say, that was a good man. His words don't leave you room for that. He's either all that he says he is or he isn't anything at all. And so we have to respond, and I just don't think simple amazement is the appropriate way. So let's look at the other way, treasuring. After three days of worry, Mary and Joseph, they finally find Jesus in the temple. And I can imagine that they're somewhere between ready to give him a good smack and a good hug. Because after all this time, they finally find, where do they find him? They find him in the temple interrogating the teachers of the faith. They're like, you couldn't have done this while we were here all week? You had to wait until we left to do this? And you can read the distress in Mary's response, right? She's like, why have you treated us like this? We've been looking for you everywhere. But like we said, Jesus basically responds and says, why would you be looking for me anywhere else? But let's look in verse 50. His parents, and it says, and his parents did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. See, they're astonished, yes, just like everyone else, but they're also willing to say, I don't quite get this. Friends, does Jesus make you feel like that as well? Do his actions and his teaching, do they cause us to just kind of not quite get it at times? See, we thought we had Jesus figured out. We thought we had this Christian life figured out until Jesus comes along and does something that we just didn't expect him to do. And isn't that just how real relationships work, right? It's the more that you get to know a person that you realize how little you actually knew about them to begin with. And even in a marriage, after years and years of deep intimacy, a spouse can still surprise you. See, and we can look countless places in Scripture for God doing the surprising, doing things that we didn't expect him to do, or maybe doing things in a way that we just didn't expect him to do. 
But instead of doing that, let's just look at the one example in our text. Jesus is at one moment challenging the teachers in the temple, and at the very next moment, he's submitting to his parents. What? See, we like consistency in our leaders. We like to know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. That's why we really like party platforms is because we can say, I'm going to hold you accountable to this. You said you're going to enact these policies. You said you were going to do it this way by this time frame. And so based off of this, though, we might be tempted to paint a picture of Jesus that is always questioning authority and never submitting to it because we like consistency. But here we see Jesus operating in two institutions that he himself established. That's important. He established his own people and he established the household. And we see him challenging one and submitting to the other. See, the challenge is the one that makes sense to us, right? I mean, first of all, because he's God. And so he has the authority to correct his people. He has the authority to correct his teachers and their teaching. But secondly, we live in an age where we question every kind of authority. We treat authority like a zero-sum game where if someone has authority or power, then it can only have come at the oppression of someone else. We say, why do you want to be in power? Who is it that you're holding back in order to keep it? See, we live in a culture that is intuitively suspicious of authority figures and authority structures. And so when Jesus is mixing things up in the temple, we look at him and we say, yes, that's my guy. I'm with him. But we have to admit that being God, wouldn't we expect that he could have easily done that with the household? Mary and Joseph were certainly faulty parents. They were imperfect parents like every set of parents. And so even as a 12-year-old, he could have said like, hey, so listen, I kind of wrote the book on parenting. But that's not what we see. We see him submitting to them. Jesus is not as simple as we want him to be. And that makes him amazing. But, but again, simple amazement can't be the end of the road. That can't be where we stop. We need to be like Mary. See, Mary, what she does is she takes all of this in. Everything that she's heard, everything that's happened, everything that she's seen, what she doesn't even understand. And what does it say that she does? She treasures it in her heart. John Calvin says that this treasuring is like a seed going into the ground. It, it lays there for a while before popping up to yield its fruit. And so when Jesus doesn't quite fit the mold that you've made for him, when his words and his teaching and his actions, they challenge you, they challenge us as a church, they challenge us as a culture in ways that we just don't quite understand, don't discard it, treasure it. Because as you plant those seeds in your heart by faith and give them time to nurture and time to grow, eventually they're going to pop up and bear fruit in your life. See, it's when we treasure Jesus, when we're with him in the temple, that our lives, they'll inevitably begin to look like his. Right? Look, verse 49 says that Jesus is in his father's house. But the footnote in your Bible is going to say that it could also be translated about my father's business. And listen, verse 52 says that Jesus, he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And the word increase there means that he cut a path. He pioneered a way forward. 
And so like a snowplow that clears the road after a big storm, he showed us what a life of wisdom and maturity and favor really looks like, a life of truly treasuring God. But he also knows that it's slip, or it's easy to slip and spin out on icy roads. And so he didn't just clear the path and sprinkle some salt and say, follow me. He said, I'll become the path for you, so I know you won't fall off. And if we believe that, if we believe that Christ really did die on the cross for your sins and my sins, that he really did raise from the dead on Sunday, and like we learned last year in Romans, that we really are adopted children of God by faith, then when he looks at us, when God looks at us, he sees the very perfection of Jesus Christ. If we lay hold of that, then as we treasure him, our lives will look more and more like his. Because listen to this, his father's house is our father's house. His father's business is our father's business. Our lives should be filled with prioritizing being together because we can say like Christ, why would you look for me anywhere else? Of course you'll find me in my father's house. And our lives can be filled with helping each other and caring for the poor and the widow and the orphans and weeping together and praying with one another and encouraging one another and having a distinct joy that surmounts and surpasses any of the hardest storms of life. Because listen, this is what we can do when we dwell secure in our Father's house. This is what it looks like to be about his business. And so, friends, my prayer for us as a church this year is that we would spend our time treasuring Jesus together. Not spending our time looking for him where he won't be found, but instead spend our time in the temple, pressing into the things that we don't quite understand and treasuring them so that we may know him only all the more truly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we...